I'm starting a series on 2 Corinthians. I've never preached through it. Some wonderful passages in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at them in the days ahead as we work expositionally through the book of 2 Corinthians. But the background is found here in Acts chapter 18. That's why I want you to turn there. We're going to read. So if you've found your place, I'm going to begin reading. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Because he was of the same trade, Paul was a leather worker, and so was Aquila. Because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, as Paul's custom was when he came in the town. He would reason with the Jews first. Those were his kinsmen. And then they'd usually stone him or throw him out of town or whatever, and then he'd go to the Gentile. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, remember Paul is in Corinth, that's Acacia, southern Greece, Macedonia is northern Greece. Paul was compelled by the Spirit. The Spirit came upon him. He was constrained. He was filled with the Spirit, and he had to preach. He was compelled by the Spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments, kind of a Jewish symbol of, I'm done with you. It's over here. I leave you. He shook his garments and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed. Paul, as persuasive, as spirit-filled as he was, could not convince everybody that Jesus was the Christ. We all recognize that. The Spirit of God has to draw a person and convict a person. And if they won't, then their blood will be upon their own heads. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, and he departed from there, and he entered into the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. When the Bible uses the term, he was a worshiper of God. They called them in that day God-fearers. A Gentile who hadn't converted to Judaism hadn't become a proselyte to Judaism, was called a God-fearer. In other words, they believed in monotheism. They believed that there was only one God, but they didn't totally buy into the whole Jewish law, sacrificial system, and all of that. So they were God-fearers. They were probably even saved. At least they had rejected pantheism, polytheism, and they said, there's only one God. We recognize that. But they were probably saved, maybe not all of them, but they called them God-fearers. And that's what justice was. Verse 7, who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Things aren't going good for the Jews. The guy who lived next door to the synagogue gets converted. And then the synagogue leader, he gets converted. The Jews are saying, what? what's going on? Everybody's getting saved. They got angry. And many of the Corinthians hearing the gospel believed and got baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. 
Notice in verse 9 and 10, God gives him four things here I want you to notice. He says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Number one, he tells him, Paul, don't be afraid. Now we think, Paul, afraid? Paul, the bold, intrepid missionary? He was afraid of nothing. Paul was a regular human being. And sometimes Paul didn't want to open his mouth. He says, don't be afraid, speak up. In other words, don't be afraid, preach the gospel is what God is telling to Paul. Don't be afraid of what's going to happen, Paul. I know you have fears just like everybody else. Remember, Paul's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been whipped. He's been driven out of town multiple times. He had reason to be afraid of these Jews. But God says, don't be afraid. Preach the gospel is the second thing. The next verse, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. So God promised to be with him and to protect him. That's the third thing. And number four, for I have many people in the city. Now, wait a minute. At this point, there were two people who had gotten saved. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and Justice, the guy who lived next door to the synagogue. But God says to Paul, I have many people in this city. They aren't saved yet. In other words, God knew there were going to be many, many people who would get saved, but Paul had to preach the gospel. People don't get saved unless we give them the gospel. And many times there's all kinds of potential saved people, but they won't get saved if we don't preach the gospel. So God is encouraging Paul. Many people are going to be saved. Don't be afraid. Just preach the gospel. Verse 11. And he continued there, Paul, for a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. When Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, by the way, this has been through archaeological discovery, we have this for fact, that Galileo was the proconsul in Acacia. That is written in stone, and it's been discovered in recent years. That there was this man, and it was the exact time that Paul was there, and it's been proven by historical evidence. When Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, wait a minute, if it were a matter of wrongdoing, or of wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I would bear with you. I would listen to your complaint. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourself. If it's just going to be wrangling about Jewish law, I'm not interested, he says. For I do not want to be judged over such a matter. And he drove them from the judgments. He drove them out of the pavement area where he made his judgments. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Welcome to the Christian life, is what they're saying to Sosthenes. Welcome to the Christian life, you're going to experience persecution. And beat him before the judgment, but Galileo took no notice of these things. He said, I don't care about it. You do what you want to do. Okay, so today, that's the background here of the start of the church in Corinth. And so we're looking today at 2 Corinthians, and it may seem tedious. 
It may seem, maybe to some, I hope not, I, but a little boring, but I have to give you the background. And it's found here in Acts chapter 18. Let me give you some other background here in the introduction to 2 Corinthians. First of all, the location of this church. Corinth was a city in Greece, and Josh has a map up here for us. It was a city in Greece, but it was the least Greek of all the Greek cities. Matter of fact, it was a city in Rome, but it was the least Roman of all the Roman cities. It was the least Greek because there were Greeks there, but there were also many Italians, many Jews, and many other nationalities from all around the Mediterranean world that had come there. It was a Greek city. It was a Roman city, but it was the least Greek city in the Roman Empire. It had approximately of the citizenship there or the people that occupied the city of Corinth, three-quarters of them were slaves. Three-quarters of them were very poor slaves that owned only the clothing on their back. But Corinth was one of the richest cities in the entire Roman Empire. So here you have very poor people living in the wealthiest city, maybe in the Roman Empire. And so they ended up comprising a great deal of the early church there at Corinth. Corinth's location made it an important city. As you can see, Corinth is located on an isthmus. Isthmus is a tiny peninsula of land that connects Acacia, the southern, that hand-like island, with northern Greece, which is called Macedonia, where Philippi and Thessalonica, many other cities. And Athens is on the very bottom of northern Greece, uh, Macedonia as well. Matter of fact, it's about 45 miles to the east. So you can see looking at them, Athens is there, Corinth is right there. Corinth was right at that tiny isthmus of land. That's what made it so important. The city of Corinth was the commercial and political capital of Greece, while Athens was the philosophical and cultural capital. Most of us know that some of the greatest philosophers of the ancient world lived in Greece and lived in Athens. It's where philosophy really got started. And by the way, we're, as Christians, we're philosophers. What is philosophy? Sophos is the Greek word for wisdom. So phileo means to love. Philosophers are those who love wisdom. Christians are philosophers. Sometimes if I'm sitting next to somebody and they say, well, what do you do? I generally say I'm a pastor. Or if they say, where did you go to school or whatever, what are your degrees? Then I'll say, I have a degree in philosophy and religion. That's the truth. Because I study the Bible, which is the source of wisdom. The Bible is the source of wisdom. Matter of fact, in the ancient world, philosophers tried to answer three questions. And you can't answer them without the Bible. They said it this way, whither, whence, and why. Whither, whence, and why. Whither is asking the question, trying to answer the question, whither did we come from? Where did we come from? Whence is where are we going and why? It answers the question of why. So philosophers wrestled with the question, how did man get here? What is our purpose in life? And where are we going after this life? That's the three main questions of philosophers. And the only people who can answer that question are Christians. We know where we came from. We're a creature 
that God designed and God created Adam and Eve. We know where we came from. We came out of the Garden of Eden. Our ancestors came out of the Garden of Eden, but they sinned and the whole world fell. Why are we here? Well, as Christians, we're here to glorify God. Uh, we're to live for God. Whatever our vocation, whatever our occupation is, we're doing it for the glory of God, whatever that might be. Whence, where are we headed? In other words, we're headed to heaven. Where everything's going to be made right. Paradise is restored. Uh, God is glorified, and we get our glorified body. Only Christians can answer the philosophical questions that that started way back there in Athens. So, Athens was the philosophical and cultural capital. Corinth was the commercial and political capital. But as that narrow isthmus of land, just a few miles wide, is where Corinth sat. And what they did in the ancient world, if you sailed around the bottom part, it's called the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese is those fingers that are sticking out. It's very dangerous waters. They didn't like to sail there. Plus, it took them days, if not weeks sometimes, depending upon the contrary wind. So instead of sailing around Acacia, the Peloponnese, they would take their boats, unload the ship of people and goods, and they put it on a track, and they trekked it those couple of miles across the isthmus. And then they would go from one gulf to the other gulf. It saved them time. It gave the sailors an opportunity to relax, spend their money, and then they would reload their boat and sail on to Ephesus, or if they're going on the other way, to sail on to Italy. Because of that, they would unload and they would spend money. They tried to dig a canal under Nero in 70, 67 AD, but they were unsuccessful. It's pretty much all rock. Corinth is built upon rock. Eventually, Greece did build that canal in 1893. It was finally done. So that's Corinth. You've heard of the Olympic Games. There were also the Isminian Games. Isminian Games. And they were second only to the Olympic Games in the ancient world. In other words, people from all over the world, all over the Mediterranean world would come there to compete in the Olympic Games and the Isminian Games for the money, for the fame, for the notoriety that came along with it. They would come there. And like most ancient Greek cities, Corinth had an acropolis. You're familiar with that word? Athens is an acropolis. Acropolis means polis is city. So our governor's name really literally means from the Greek city, Governor Polis. You've heard like when I go to the cemetery tomorrow, I often say the ancient world would call this place a necropolis. A necropolis. Necro means dead, polis means city. The city of the dead. That's what they called the burial grounds in the ancient world. Necropolis. The city of the dead. I said, but when the Christians came along, they put their loved ones in what they called a cemetery, what we call today a cemetery, which means sleeping place. Why? Because we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be raised. And when the Lord comes back, he'll raise our bodies. We will be united with our Lord, and we will receive our new body. So it's a sleeping place. It's not a city of the dead for Christians. So necropolis means city of the dead. Acropolis means high city, city on the, on the plateau. And almost 
all the ancient great cities had an acropolis like Athens and like Corinth, the high city, which was used both for defense and for worship. At the acropolis in Corinth, there was a huge temple, one of the biggest, most famous, and most frequented temples of the ancient Greek world. And it was dedicated to who? Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And truthfully, she was the goddess of lust. She was the goddess of sex. So Aphrodite's temple, this huge temple to one of the most famous of the Greek gods was there on the Acropolis there in Corinth. And the most prominent edifice, the temple of Aphrodite, there were some 1,000 priestess. And I use that term very loosely, but that's what they were called. There were 1,000 priestess who were temple prostitutes, who the worshipers engaged with in uh, immorality and sex as they got drunk and they thought commune with one of the Greek gods, with their favorite Greek god. That's how they worshiped in the ancient world. Don't you see how Satan twists everything? What is evil in their mind was religious and what we think of as being sinful, and it is sinful. They exalted it. Well, he's really a big worshiper. Well, that meant he was a big adulterer. Satan, he switched the price tags. He makes evil good and good evil. These 1,000 priestess who were religious prostitutes and lived and worked at the temple would come down into the city in the evening offering their services to the citizens, to the sailors, to the visitors. The combination of wealth that was in Corinth, the exotic location, and the travelers that knew they could come through and do whatever they wanted, there would be no record of it. So the combination of wealth, exotic location, and travelers from throughout the ancient world made Corinth an especially wicked city, even by pagan standards, an especially wicked city. In the ancient world, if you wanted to insult someone, you called them a Corinthian. Well, you Corinthian. That meant that you were a lying, drunken, immoral person. By just calling them a Corinthian, you're saying you're a liar, you're a drunk, and you're especially immoral. So, with all that background, you have to say, what a great place to start a church. That's, that's what God was thinking, and that's what Paul was thinking. Matter of fact, the longer I live in Colorado, and I moved here in 84, people say to me, are you a Colorado native? I say, no, but I got here as soon as I could. I wasn't born here, but I got here as soon as I could. And the longer I live in Colorado, Colorado is beginning to look more and more like Corinth. It's the Corinthianizing of Colorado. Look at our laws, look at the behavior, look at everything that's going on. What a great place to start a church. God led the Apostle Paul to do that very thing, and we read about it in the book of Acts. Paul was at Athens, preached there, few converts. He left, he came to Corinth, 45 miles to the west. And that described the founding of the church at Corinth on Paul's second missionary journey. And he met Aquila and Priscilla. We like those names, how they roll off our tongue. Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jewish believers 
who had gotten converted, but Paul met him when he came to Corinth, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, tell us that, because they were leather workers. They were converts. Paul was a convert, and they had the same trade, so they hooked up together, and they teamed up together to win people to Jesus and to start a church in Corinth. Paul departed after ministering in Corinth for 18 months, verse 11 tells us here in Acts chapter 18. He had been there for one year and six months, established a church, left Aquila and Priscilla behind to lead that ministry. But as I said earlier, note, God had to say to Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Paul experienced fear just like the rest of us. Sharing our faith many times makes us nervous, fearful, anxious. And the Word of God encourages us to share our faith, to share the gospel. It was a wicked city with a transient population and obviously a hostile religious establishment. They drove Paul out of the synagogue. It was a hostile religious establishment. But God promised him that there were many people in this city who would believe if he would proclaim the truth, if he would share the gospel, a church would be established, people would be converted. So that's the location of the church. What's the occasion of this letter? Number two, the occasion of this letter. Second Corinthians at times, in certain places I should say, can be a little difficult to understand because it alludes to people and events that were familiar to the original audience but are not to us as modern-day readers. For example, when Paul referred to in this book his thorn in the flesh, everybody at the church of Corinth knew what he was talking about, but it's because he came there because of his thorn in the flesh to get help. But we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. And there are other examples of that in this book. And it's mentioned, by the way, in chapter 12, verse 7, this thorn in the flesh. And we're glad. I'm glad that it's not mentioned because all of us can identify with it. We don't know if Paul's thorn in the flesh. I think it was his eyesight. Ever since he was converted on the road to Damascus and he was blind for several days, and Paul said in his letters, see, I signed this with my own hand. See how large of letters I write? Maybe he had bad, bad cataracts as a result of that blinding light. And his face was somewhat disfigured. That's mentioned. So I tend to think it was his eyesight. Maybe he had epilepsy. Some people have suggested that because of many beatings. They had some kind of a brain injury, and so he had palsy or shook or went into a seizure. We don't know, but we don't need to know because it helps us understand that we all sometimes come to some part in our life where we have a thorn in the flesh, and God leaves it there so we'll depend upon him. That's what the lesson is. This letter contains, I think, some of the most revealing self-portraits of Paul. There's some passages in 2 Corinthians I absolutely love and even maybe identify with to some degree. In 2 Corinthians, he does something he never does in any other book. He defends his apostleship. And that was because there were false teachers that had entered into the church after Paul left and said, Paul's not an apostle. Matter of fact, he's a false teacher. And it got to the point that it was influencing the church so deeply so widely that Paul defends his apostleship in this letter like he doesn't do any other New Testament letter. I'm going to tell you something that many of you are aware of 
We have two letters to the Corinth, Corinthian church, but Paul wrote four. Paul wrote four. Even from his own writings, he tells us that. So we're going to turn just a little bit and examine that. From Paul's own writings, it is clear that he wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth. And we say preservation, the fact that they're preserved, is a part of inspiration. If they weren't preserved, it doesn't mean that the letters have bad advice in them. It just means that God didn't want them recorded and preserved in holy writ. They're not a part of the canon of Scripture. Okay? Paul wrote four letters. The first one, let's turn here, the first one that preceded what we call 1 Corinthians was a strong warning about some of the immorality that was taking place. They were saved out of immorality. They took a light view towards it. They were being quite careless. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my epistle. So that tells you right there, there was an epistle, a letter, that preceded this one. Or otherwise, you would have dealt with the subject matter right here. But he's saying, I wrote to you earlier in my former epistle, not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Now, he's not talking about get out of Corinth because everybody was sexually immoral. He's saying don't fellowship in the church with people who proclaim to be believers and they're living an immoral life. That's what it's saying right here in verse 9. So that was his first letter to them. The second letter is what we have in our Bibles known as 1 Corinthians. No question about that. The third letter is described, and you've probably read this, it's called the severe letter. It's Paul's harshest letter. It's called the severe letter, and it's referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. So turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. He's talking about, and this is the best passage in all the Bible, I can't wait to get to it, that deals with what is true repentance. He defines it, uses 13 words to describe true repentance. But in verse 8 and 9, he says this, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. He's not talking about 1 Corinthians because he didn't deal with the sin problem. He says, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I had some remorse over it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, biblical repentance, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. After Paul's severe letter, mentioned here, after which he made a, a visit, evidently, and it wasn't pleasant, it wasn't successful, and that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Then later, the Bible tells us, Titus came from Corinth to Paul. Paul was no longer in Corinth. And he said, guess what, Paul? Your severe letter and the follow-up letter has done the job. God's gotten a hold of hearts. They have truly repented of their sin. And then Paul writes to them from Philippi, the letter we call 2 Corinthians. Four letters written by Paul to preserve, and we call them First and Second Corinthians. Let me give you a general outline of the book. This gives you an idea what Paul is dealing with, where we're going. First, Paul explains his ministry. He's somewhat defending his ministry. And I'm glad he does, because in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty, 
He helps us understand what ministry is all about and what we can expect in ministry. So it's helpful for all of us. God in his providence allowed Paul to explain his ministry so we understand what true ministry is. And he does that in chapters 1 through 7. Paul explains his ministry. Number two, Paul promotes the offering. In chapters 8 and 9, He's raising money to send to the poor saints in Jerusalem, but it gives us the principles of stewardship. We're glad for that. He explains how a Christian is to use their money. Everything from tithing to giving an offering are talked about there, taking care of the poor. Paul promotes the offering. And then 10 through 13, Paul defends his apostleship. So those are the broad categories that outline 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. The fellowship of suffering is what I've entitled these verses. 1 through 11. The fellowship of suffering. Let's take a section at a time. Verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Why does he say that? He says that because they were doubting his apostleship. And Paul is saying to them, I'm doing this because it's the will of God. I was called by God to be an apostle. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother. He doesn't call Timothy an apostle. He calls him a brother, a servant. Paul was an apostle. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So we're talking verses 1 through 11 here. The fellowship of suffering, verses 1 through 3, talk about the person of divine comfort. The person of divine comfort. Paul has already mentioned he's a true apostle called by God. So those who are saying he's not an apostle of God, he sets the record straight and he deals with it later in the book. And by the way, no man in their right mind, no man in their right mind would choose the kind of life that Paul lived, except he was called by God. Look at what Paul put up with. He was constantly in physical danger. He was constantly being pursued by the Jews, his enemies, who didn't want him to preach the gospel. They wouldn't receive it, but they didn't want the Gentiles to hear it either. Go figure. He was constantly in hardships. He was constantly being insulted. He was constantly being persecuted. He was lonely. He suffered from anxiety, conflict, and fear all the time. Nobody would say, I want that kind of a life. No, he was doing that kind of a life because God called him to it. He was an apostle. He settles that matter, or he starts that matter right here. But then look at verse 3. It was God the Father who showed Paul mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. It was God the Father who showed Paul mercy and gave him comfort. So it's in the context of all the things that Paul has suffered. God was right there with him, comforting him, helping him. His grace was enabling him to go through the trials that he was going through. You know, when we think of comfort, we often think of the Holy Spirit. He's called the comforter. But it originates, the comfort that we enjoy, that the Holy Spirit brings to us, administers to us, originates in the heart and mind of the Father. God is not some wrathful, vengeful, angry God in heaven 
that knows nothing of mercy or nothing of comfort. No, God is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies, he tells us. And the Holy Spirit brings it to us and applies it to us. The person of divine comfort is the Father administered through the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. Second, look at verses 4 through 7. The purpose of divine comfort. It says in verse 4, we're going to read from 4 to 7, who comforts us in all our tribulation, all of our trials, all of our trouble, that we may be able to comfort those who are also in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ have abounded in us, so also the uh, consolation abounds in us through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer, or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of these sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. The purpose of divine comfort I see in these verses. We all know we live in a fallen world. We all know we have an inherited sin-cursed body. The stuff that we can't do, that we should do, or that we used to do, or we would like to do. There are things that we do do that we don't really want to. As Paul laments in Romans, he says, the things that I would do, I don't. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this flesh? He said, who's going to deliver me? And the answer into that passage is God. Right now, we're in the sanctifying process. We've been justified. We're in the sanctifying process. Someday we'll be glorified. Those are the three aspects of salvation. The three aspects of salvation is justification, when we got saved, sanctification, the Christianizing of the Christian, and glorification, where we're delivered from our sin and the sin-cursed world. We live in a fallen world, sin-cursed body. Suffering is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Because sin's all in us and all around us. It doesn't have to control us, but it's everywhere. And even the world is broken because of sin. First, the Bible tells us God allows suffering to enter into our lives so we will turn to him for grace and help and in turn help others. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, I kind of preached about this idea on trials and suffering. We live in a sin-cursed world, but God's still superintending the process. When you go through a trial, when you experience suffering, when you are grieved and hurting, God is allowing you to go through that so you'll say, God, I'm hurting. I don't have the wisdom to do what I'm supposed to do. I need your help. Bingo. Eureka. That's why God sent the trial into your life, is so you would turn to him and say, God, I need you. And then he opens up the reservoirs of grace, and they shoot through the channel, and they come into your life. God's grace comes into our life as a result. And then the second aspect, after we go and get grace from God, what does he say? We take it to others. So that you may minister to others. So the comfort with which you have experienced, you may give to others. So if you have suffered, and who here hasn't, if you've been through trials and tribulation, and probably any adult would say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. 
If you've been through trials and suffering and you never share with others the things that you learned and the grace that you received from God, then you're being a lousy steward. That sounds kind of harsh. Don't mean it to be harsh. But if you've experienced trials and tribulations and heartaches and sadness and grief, and God ministered to you, you appeal to me, ministered to you, and you don't share that with others, this passage says, then you're not being a good steward. God wants you to receive it, but God wants you to pass it on. He wants you to minister to others as well. In verse 5, the point being made is when we suffer because of our identity with Christ, we can expect abounding consolation. Paul suffered big time. Paul suffered mega. Paul suffered extraordinary, but he received extraordinary grace, mega grace, unusual grace. Suffering, afflictions, trials only means more grace from God is what verse 5 is saying. Suffering that has no seeming purpose leads to despair. I've met people like that. I've met many non-Christians who are suffering and it leads them to despair. Matter of fact, so despairing, some of them take their own life. And it's not just old people, it's young people especially that are doing that today. The suicide rate amongst young people has never been higher than it has been in the last 18 months. We all know that. When you suffer and it doesn't have any purpose, it leads to despair and often to death. Because you say, what's the use? Life has no meaning. The suffering means nothing. It's only pain and heartache and sorrow. Suffering that has no purpose leads to despair. But with Christ, the contrast is it leads to ministry. In other words, people who suffer and they receive the grace of God opens doors of ministry that would have never been there. I've used the example of her before, but Johnny Erickson Tata jumped off a diving board into a pool when she was, I think, 17 and broke her neck, and she's a quadriplegic to today. And if she hadn't broken her neck, she probably would have lived a normal life. But because of breaking her neck, she has Johnny and Friends, which is a worldwide ministry, not just ministering to the handicapped. She has a worldwide ministry that brings people to Jesus Christ every single day of the year because she suffered. And she took the grace of God and said, now, I'm going to use this to minister to others. Even though I'm in a wheelchair, I can't dress myself, I can't feed myself, I can't go to the bathroom by myself, I can't wipe my mouth, all she can do is move her tongue. But because she took her suffering and yielded it up to God, she has a worldwide ministry that has affected hundreds of thousands of people. Third, the power of divine comfort, and we end here. Verses 8 through 11, Paul says what? For we do, not, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength. See, Paul's being very transparent. He says, we were in trouble, beyond our strength. We were burdened beyond measure. You couldn't put a tape measure to it. Above our strength, so that we despaired even a life. You get what Paul's saying? I was ready to throw in the towel. 
Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I was ready to quit. I was ready for God to take me home. That's what he's saying. We despaired even of life. And we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Literally, we were as good as death. We had a sentence of death, but God raised us from the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death, verse 10, and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Your prayers brought my deliverance, Paul says, and I thank you for that. Paul alludes to this great trial in Asia, and he had many trials in Asia. It could have been the riot caused by Demetrius. Remember Acts chapter 19? The whole city was in an uproar. They were getting ready to kill Paul. He could have been alluding to that. He could have been talking about some deadly illness that he had. He could have been talking about when he fought wild beasts. He mentions that. He was sentenced to death in the arena. He doesn't tell us exactly which one of the events that he's been through, and there have been several. That's why there was a short sign-up list online if you wanted to join Apostle Paul's evangelistic party. You know, it's like, eh, I don't think so. It doesn't turn out well for guys to sign up for that. We've seen his curriculum vitae. He always gets thrown in the lions. He always gets chipwrecked. We don't know exactly what he was referring to, but he was burdened beyond measure. He was burdened above his own human strength. Paul had given up any hope of living. Verse 8, he says, I'd given up any hope of living. He had the sentence of death in him. A lot of language there describing how low Paul was. But the prayers of God's people prompted the grace of God. It's like the prayers of God's people loosened the arm of God and God opens his arm and he dishes out grace to Paul. Paul receives it. He's delivered from death as a result of their prayers. Yes, God is merciful. And yes, God answers prayer. And all of us need to be reminded of that. Because probably everybody in the room has been praying for somebody And God hasn't answered your prayer. They haven't gotten saved. They're still living a wicked lifestyle. They still reject Jesus Christ. God answers prayer. We don't give up. I got to quit. Let me just give you two thoughts in closing here. Wickedness, we're talking the city of Corinth. Maybe now we're talking about Colorado. Wickedness does not prohibit God from working in a life or even in a city. It doesn't preclude God's working. You may think, oh, I don't want to witness to them. (laughs) They're so wicked. They're so hell-bent. They're so debauched. They'll never receive the message. Look at the Corinthians. There's a church there now. In spite of the wickedness of that city, wickedness doesn't preclude God or prohibit him from working. Second, God doesn't waste trials on his children. God doesn't waste his trials, our trials. They're meant to draw us to him. They're meant to give us a platform from which we can minister to others. 
So the next time you go through, as Paul says, tribulation, trial, despairing, even of life, remember, God has a purpose. If you're a lost person, you fall into despair. If you're a saved person, it's a launching pad for ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for planning a church, allowing Paul to plant a church in Aquila and Priscilla, in probably the most wicked city in the ancient world, the Las Vegas of America, and worse. We thank you that your word is not bound. Your grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded more, we read. And we believe that. And we're going to live in the reality of that truth. So help us to be shining lights in a very dark place in our day. Help us to keep praying for those that seem to be in such deep trouble and so hardened to the truth of God's Word. So we commit ourselves to you, and we look forward to what you're going to teach us here in 2 Corinthians. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're not really sure heaven's your home. You can settle that today. You could come and trust Jesus Christ. You can seek me out. Pastor Brian is here, Pastor Jacob, or probably many other men and women in our church. And we'll be glad to show you from the Scriptures how to know Jesus Christ and how to be born again. So I just appeal to you. If you haven't settled that, do it today.